Happy Resurrection Sunday, everyone. My gosh, we are so blessed to be able to be here. As, as a church body, um, as your pastor, I am so blessed to be here, and I'm excited. I say this every week, that I'm excited to give this message, because I always am. It's always cool to see what the Lord's going to say through me. I, I don't even know what I'm going to say until I get up here. I have an idea, but I don't always know. But this week, this message, I know, is going to be extra special. And the reason I know that is because whenever you're about to do something especially significant for the kingdom of God, the devil comes at you. The devil always comes at you. Whether you're stepping out in a new job or, or you're going to go talk to somebody or you're going to deliver a message or whatever it is in between that God's calling you to do at that moment, the enemy always wants to come at you and stop you or somehow derail that from happening. And this, this message was no different, but it might have been amped up just a little bit. All kinds of little bugaboo things happened all week long, not the least of which was two days ago I was working, you know, just final Easter preparations here in the church and got my finger caught in a piece of power equipment and uh, mashed the end of my finger. It was awesome. And then so I spent about half a day walking around with my head swimming and like not knowing what I was doing. As a result of that, I was finishing up my message prep late into the evening hour. I was actually 1 a.m. when I left the church on Friday night. On the way home, going down county line, I'm driving, just kind of thinking about getting home and getting to bed, and I see some headlights coming straight at me. And I'm thinking, wow, he looks like he's in my lane. And the closer he gets, I go, wow, he really looks like he's in my lane. (laughs) Turns out he was in my lane. And so at the last moment, I'm swerving over into the dirt, and uh, thank God there was a little place where I could get off into that. But my thought was, you need to pray for him right now, and you need to turn and follow him and make sure that if, if necessary that you call it in and, and get this man off the road before he hurts someone. Well, no sooner could I do a U-turn than I crested over the hill and he had actually been involved in a, in a head-on collision. Two other vehicles and him. And I was the first on the scene and so stayed for another hour doing police reports and, and, and helping out where I could. And, um, but... Long story short, this is how I know that, the, that, that our Lord really has something that he wants for you to hear today. Because there's nothing more powerful than the message of a resurrected Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that. I really don't need to add anything to that other than to say, we have a resurrected Lord who is with us. He is not here. That's the sign that's on the tomb. If you go to Jerusalem, when you walk in, it says, he is not here. He is risen. And aren't we thankful for that? So as we go into this message, I just want to remind you, for the past eight weeks, we've been talking about stations of the cross, the traditional route that Jesus took through the Via Dolorosa, through Jerusalem, between the time he was judged by Pilate and the time that he was crucified on Golgotha or Calvary. You heard the the kids, they did a wonderful job reading the scriptures that we walked through. But it can be a little bit dark the last eight weeks, I actually found myself, during my message, I would, I would hear my voice as I taught the messages, and I go, wow, your tone is kind of somber. You need to bring up the energy a little bit. But here's the thing. When you talk about what our Lord and Savior went through for us, for you, on that day, it's hard to be celebratory. It's hard to have joy in your heart when you walk through the things that he walked through. Now, here we are on Resurrection Sunday, and we have reason to celebrate. We have gone through the pain. We have gone through all those things and watched the path that Jesus took. And now we're at that place where we can truly celebrate. You've heard the scriptures. You've read the message. uh, You've seen the pictures. We know what he's gone through up to this point. And let me give you a little quick recap. For those of you who maybe haven't been here for the last eight weeks, as we retraced his steps, very quickly, station number one is where Jesus condemns, or Pilate condemns Jesus to die. Jesus accepts that judgment. Station number two, Jesus accepts his cross. Because if you were crucified, you actually had to carry your own cross. He accepts that cross. Number three, station, uh, Simon helps 
to carry that cross. Jesus collapses under the pain and under the weight and under the blood loss, and Simon actually helps him to carry that cross. Station four, Jesus speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem, takes time in the middle of carrying his cross and all that to actually preach a last message. Station number five, Jesus is stripped of his garments, humiliated and stripped naked in front of everyone. Station six, Jesus is nailed to the cross. Station number seven, Jesus cares for his mother at that last moment. He looks down, sees his mother, sees his best friend, and takes time to care for them and make sure that they are in the right place. Station number eight, then, Jesus dies on the cross. It's been painful. It's been painful for me as I studied this out. It's been more than just a a 30-minute message on Sundays, and I'm sure it has been for, for many, many of you as we have this realization of what he went through. It's been eight weeks of of studying and and thinking of the pain. But even with that, you can't experience the sights and the smells and the feeling and the sounds of agony and the sounds of torture and the actual just gut-wrenching reality of what happened. It's been hard. But again, here we are. It's time to celebrate. And so I want to give a test to you. If I were to say, he is risen. He is risen okay. All right. Now we know who our church people are, right? We know our church people. There are people in here who are going, what just happened? Do they have a meeting ahead of service that I didn't know about? That's a very traditional churchy saying, right? Now, there, there were some of you, I'm sure, who felt it in your heart and you belted it out. And I could tell from up here that that's what happened. There are some of us, probably some who aren't even regular churchgoers, who knew what to say and they said it back. He is risen indeed. That's the answer. But here's the thing. It is so much more than just a saying that we parrot back. It's so much more than just something we do. If you knew the significance of what it really, really meant. That saying, that call and response would be a war cry of victory over the grave. A war cry of victory over what Jesus did and he accomplished victory over all the schemes of the devil, over all the power of the devil, giving you authority over the things the devil would throw at you and ultimately gives us victory in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. It's not just a simple, hey, he says this and we say it back. It is victory, and that's what it means. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. So let's get into the message. Amen. That was awesome. Matthew 28, verses 3 to 6. Let's put that up on there. Okay, Matthew 28, 3 to 6. This is going to be our scripture for for the day. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. He is risen. Come on, we're going to do this a few times, so be on your toes. So before I get into the rest of this, let me back up just a little bit. Let me back up just a little bit. We went through the stations. Imagine if if you're one of Jesus' disciples. You've been with him all this time. You have heard him preach. You have heard him predict his own resurrection in three days. You've heard him talk about the things that were about to happen. It shouldn't have been a surprise to you what he went through. And in many ways, it wasn't a surprise to them. But imagine you have seen your Savior submit himself, the Messiah that you have set aside your entire life to follow. You have seen him submit himself to judgment and torture and mockery and shame 
and ultimately submit himself to death on the cross without ever once fighting it, without ever once fighting back or advocating for himself. And now you've seen that he has died. How would you feel? I'm sure there are many of the disciples who thought, okay, this is the moment where Jesus smites everybody with lightning. Or a flood comes and washes everyone away and we start over again. Come on, Jesus. Any moment now. Any minute now. Okay, this is the moment. But it doesn't happen. Jesus cries out, breathes his last, and dies on the cross. Where would your heart be at that moment? Be a difficult place to be. Jesus had just been crucified, given up his life on the cross. And so we move into our next scripture here. This is Matthew 27, 57 to 60. It's a little long, but I'll read it. Bear with me. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, here's actually an image of what that looks like. If you go to Jerusalem, right outside of the walls of Jerusalem, so there are two historical places where they say that the tomb may have been. I personally feel after having been there that this is where it happened, right outside the walls. That's the actual tomb. You can go there. If you go to Israel with us next year, we'll go there. You can go inside. You can touch it. And you can see. So this is what it looks like. Just for context, that's where it is. Now, the, the gardening and the, and the landscaping and all that wasn't there. But that's, that's the place. So, This scripture says that a man named Joseph from Arimathea, there's actually other scripture. In fact, in John 19, it says that another man, um, I lost my place, another man named Nicodemus was there with him. So if you heard that it was two men or one man, they're both accurate. We're focused mainly on the one man. Nicodemus, by the way, was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who actually had come to know Jesus and believe in him. Scripture says that Nicodemus actually bought spices and brought them to this to help embalm Jesus. So it wasn't as though Jesus had just passed out. He had just fainted, and they were going to come and get him and somehow revive him. They bought what was necessary to actually embalm Jesus, and that's what they came planning to do. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is a very interesting character. Earlier in Scripture... He's mentioned again, and he's mentioned because he is a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, if you remember, is actually the Jewish, essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. He's a very respected man. He's wealthy. He's well-known. He has a very important station in their culture. But Scripture says, the first time that we hear of him, he's actually disagreeing with the plan that the high priests are making for Jesus. He actually voices his opposition and says, hey, we, uh, this may be unfair. Maybe there's another way to do this. Risking a lot to in any way show allegiance or, or even sympathy towards Jesus. He risked a lot in that moment, and he's risking a lot here now to actually go and collect the body. Scripture says that he was a follower. Now, in fact, he was a secret follower. He couldn't come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm with Jesus and retain his seat on the Sanhedrin. He would have given up his status. He would have given up his income. He would have given up his identity, his, his station, and pretty much his entire way of life, up to and including possibly being crucified with Jesus as a sympathizer. It wasn't out of the question that if he was pinpointed as a sympathizer of Jesus, he could well have been crucified right along with him. 
And yet he goes to Pilate and he asks if he can have Jesus' body. Now, Pilate agrees to this. Pilate knows what a problem Jesus has been. And if it would have been one of Jesus' disciples, Pilate undoubtedly would have said, no, I'm not giving you his body so that you can do something with it and proclaim that he lived or something else happened and somehow or another continue this cycle that's been nothing but a thorn in his side. He wants this to end and go away. And so when Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the body of Jesus, he says, sure, you're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're the ones who wanted this done anyway. I trust you. I'm going to give you the body and let you do with it what you want to do. Taking this a step further, Joseph actually says, I'm going to put him in my personal tomb. Scripture says one that was hewn into the rock. So that was actually dug intentionally into the rock. It's got raised beds in a couple different chambers. There's a very specific way they did that. That wasn't the plan originally for Jesus. The plan originally was that he would have been buried along with the other two criminals all at the same time in a common tomb. And it wouldn't have been one that anybody took the time to carve out. It would have been most likely just a natural cave or something that they found somewhere. They would have thrown the bodies in and they would have shoved the opening full of boulders, mostly just to keep animals out. And that would have been the treatment. But Joseph dares to take Jesus' body to his own personal tomb at great risk of being seen as a sympathizer of Jesus. He risked a lot. Matthew 27, verse 60, a little bit later on, says he took the body of Jesus and laid it in his own new tomb. His meaning Joseph. So Joseph had just had this tomb made enough to say his new tomb, which actually fulfills Scripture. Fulfills prophecy of a prophet named Isaiah hundreds of years ago who writes this. His, meaning the Messiah who is to come, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The plan was to throw him in a common grave. He was assigned with wicked men. And yet Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus and puts him in his own tomb. It's interesting how prophecy is fulfilled time and time again. Scripture and prophecy that was given hundreds, thousands in some cases of years before Jesus is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The mathematical possibilities of those things happening in the body of one man, in one man's life, are astronomical. Considering the fact that it isn't just Jesus orchestrating these things, Jesus has died at this point. He's not really involved in what's going on here, and Joseph of Arimathea, as prophesied, gives up his tomb and says, I will share it with this man. So our next scripture, Matthew 27, 62 to 66. I don't have that one on the screen. I'll read it for you. The chief priests, having seen Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body, maybe, now Scripture doesn't record this, but maybe, he said, okay, he's one of us, Joseph is, but he did have a few objections to what we did with Jesus. He maybe is wavering a little bit. He's not kind of as rock solid as we would like him to be. And I can't risk that this problem of Jesus is going to continue. I can't risk that Jesus crops up again and we have to deal with it again somehow. So here's what happens. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the day after Jesus had been embalmed, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that the deceiver, Jesus, said, after three days, I am to rise again. 
Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate says to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a a seal on the stone. So the way this looks, and you can't see it in this picture because it's actually disintegrated long ago, they would seal these kinds of tombs, they would seal them with a stone, sometimes a millstone if there happened to be one around, uh, but otherwise just a carved a disc of stone. And they would set it on a rise. It probably would have been off to the right here. They would set it on a little bit of a rise because they weighed somewhere between one and two tons. Okay? And they would set it on a rise so that when they put the bodies inside, they would go ahead and move the dirt out of the way, give it a little shove, and it would roll down into place. Impossible for animals to move for certain and extremely difficult for a human or humans to move. But he wants to take it a step further. He wants to take it a step further and have it sealed. So what they did, not only was there this one to two ton rock stone in front of the tomb, but then they sealed it with ropes. They tied ropes around it. They must have been staked into the rock. I'm not sure how, but they did that. And then they went one step further and they sealed it with wax seals. Wax seals that were stamped like those letters that you, did, that you used to do. They're so cool. That you used to, nobody does that anymore. You know, you, you, I see my, seal my emails with a wax stamp. It's, it doesn't translate. It doesn't translate. Anyway, you've got the rock in front. You've got ropes securing that. You've got wax seals stamped with the symbol of the high priest. Jesus is not getting out. In addition to that, then they post guards. Because they know they only really have to watch him for three days. Because he said three days. If it goes beyond three days, then what he said is wrong, and he's a liar. And he's not who he said he was. And this problem will go away. This is what they do. The fact that the enemies of Jesus were the ones who orchestrated all this is especially important. Because had the body simply been turned over to his disciples, the disciples no matter what they did, they could have done this exact same thing. But then when Jesus was found to have been resurrected, everyone would have doubts. Was it really Jesus? Was he even really dead? Did they ever put him in the tomb? There'd be all these questions. To this day, there'd still be questions. The way God orchestrates things sometimes, he'll bring negative people, negative influences into our lives to solidify the fact, this is me doing this. This isn't anything that you did. This isn't anything anybody orchestrated. But the Lord God did these things. In a situation like this, there's no way it could have been anything but. Our next scripture, Matthew 28, 1 to 2. The seal is broken. It reads like this. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, remember from the teaching probably Salome, which is is Mary's sister, Jesus' aunt, came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now here's what I want you to know about that. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. Jesus didn't need help getting out. It was so that witnesses could get in and see that he was no longer in the tomb. It's also significant. Jesus could have done it by himself. We've read and we've heard about the things that Jesus was able to do. I'm certain that he could have done something and blown up the rock and just walked out triumphantly to to trumpet sounds and angels, right? But he didn't do that because Even in this moment, Jesus was submitting himself to authority. Authority had judged him. Authority had crucified him. Authority had put him in the tomb. So Jesus did not 
commit a jailbreak. Jesus was released by order of our Lord. Our Father God said, you are forgiven. You have done everything that I have asked you to do, and I am the one who is releasing you. That's important. Next scripture, an angel appears, Matthew 28, 3 to 6. This is our our main scripture. And his appearance, we're talking about the angel, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. He is risen. Amen. Jesus Christ had overcome persecution. He had overcome death. And he had overcome the grave. Now I want to ask you a question. Why was this all necessary? Couldn't Father God have just simply said, no, we're not going to do it that way. This is my son, whom I'm lo- who I love, and with him I am well pleased. He says this. So it's not like he had a problem with Jesus. Jesus was his perfect and his only son. Why couldn't God have just said, I'm going to do this a different way? We could have. And when I was preparing this message, I was going to talk to you about how Jesus was our Redeemer. I was going to teach about how Jesus was our Passover lamb, how he was our healer. I was going to teach about how Jesus is our intercessor with the Father in heaven. I was going to talk about those things. I was also going to mention how by him we have authority over Satan. How we have been given the very authority of Christ against Satan and his demons. That would have been my favorite thing to teach. I love that. I haven't even taught on that yet, so buckle up, guys. We're getting there. I was going to talk about how through Jesus we had access to the Holy Spirit now and all the things that that meant. But here's what God put on my heart. In fact, I had that written in my message. That one I was doing until one in the morning, I had all those things in there. I woke up the next morning and the Lord said, I need you to set that aside because here's what I want everyone to know. And so I try to be faithful in that. And here's what he wanted us to know. The main reason that Jesus went through this is because our Father God loves you too much to not make a way for you to be reconciled with him. Our Father in heaven loves you too much to not give everything within his power to make a way for you. He refuses to leave us to our own devices and our own purposes. We have free choice to make bad decisions, but he has made a way for our redemption at every step. That's what he wants you to know. See, we've been separated from God by sin. Our own sin has separated us from God all the way back to the first sin, the original sin, right? The Garden of Eden. Very first bad decision that mankind made. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, every one of us. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good you try to be. There is no sliding scale. There is no, well, I'm barely a sinner, and I'm, well, I'm really a sinner. All have sinned. And that can come across as harsh sometimes for people. What do you mean? I'm a sinner. I do the best I can. I love people. I give to the needy. I do all kinds. And here you are just saying, God says I'm a sinner. You're all sinners. It's because we don't have an accurate understanding of what sin is. 
So there's, there's Ten Commandments sin, right? There's stone tablet sin, thou shalt not steal, murder. Okay, there's those things. And I would imagine most of us do pretty well with Ten Commandments sins. I'm not going to make eye contact with anybody. <laughs> most of us do pretty well with the big Ten Commandments sins. The problem is, is that although those are sins, so are so many other things. So are so many other things. Sin, actually, at its root, is a term that was used in archery years and years ago in the times of Jesus. And what it means is to miss the bullseye. It simply means to miss the bullseye. Doesn't mean, if you're me and you're shooting at a target and you hit the target anywhere, that's pretty good. And if you get really close to it, you get really, really close to that second ring of the target. That's really good. But it's still a sin if you don't hit the bullseye. And a bullseye is really hard to hit, right? It's small, and it's really hard to hit. That's what sin is. And so at its root, sin is anything other than what God has for you at that moment, that day, or in your life. If anything in your life is not going exactly the way that God wants it to go, that's considered a sin. Now that again sounds harsh, right? How can anyone then not sin? What am I supposed to do? Well, number one, we have the Holy Spirit through Jesus. You seek the Holy Spirit. He will guide your steps. We're promised that. So if we seek him, we have a much better chance of not sinning throughout the day. But we're still going to do it probably, right? That's just the human condition. It's just what we do. The reason that it's called sin is because your Father God wants the best for you. He wants blessing for you. He wants abundance for you. He wants good and not evil. All the things that the Bible promises, he wants for you, not some fictional person, but for you. The promises in the Bible are for you. And if we're not walking like those promises are meant for us, and if we're not seeing that fruit in our life, then we're missing the best of what our Father wants for us. He sent his only son to die for you so that you could have these promises. And if you're not enjoying the fruit of these promises, and if you're not living your life that way, it grieves his heart like it would any father. If you're a parent, think about your kids. Their life goes away that you don't want it to go. That grieves your heart. And it's no less so for our Father in heaven. If your life is anything less than he has ordained for you since before birth. Scripture says that he knew you before you were born, before you were ever even knit together in your mother's womb. He knew you. And not only did he know you, but he had a plan for you. And if we miss that plan, it grieves him. And that's what sin is. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to reconcile you to what he had planned for you all along. How could a loving father not do anything in his power? How could he give his son for us? How could he not? How could he not? John 3.16, most of us know this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have so much to celebrate. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. But you know what? If you don't know Jesus, you can't possibly know the Father's love for you. If you don't know him, you can't feel the depth of his love. We have no context for that. But thankfully, we have the choice. 
We have the choice to know him and to receive everything that the Father wants for us. That's our choice. So John chapter 1, verse 12. I didn't put it up on, the, on your notes here. It says, But as many as received him, as many as who received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We have the right to become children of God through Jesus. So if it's easy, and if he offers this to us, and if it's abundance and blessing that he wants to offer to us, why don't some make that decision? Why do some who hear the name of Jesus just go, eh, I don't need it. It's not for me. Some don't believe, I think, because in a very real sense, Jesus is still being judged in every household all over the world. Jesus is still being judged daily all throughout the world. Some people, when you ask them about Jesus, they believe that he was just simply a prophet. He was a prophet who lived in this old time, taught, and then died like all the other prophets. Jesus was just a prophet. Some believe that he was a kind and a gentle and a charismatic man, a good teacher, maybe even a great teacher, but nothing more. Some believe that Jesus was a fictional character created by a whole bunch of people designed to control us, designed to make us all do what we're supposed to do and follow this book of rules and all play nice together. Some people believe that. But church, there are 2.5 billion people around the world today at this moment who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the promised risen Savior. And they live their lives like that. And those people have been given the right to be called co-heirs with Jesus. Co-heirs to the kingdom of God. So the worship team can go ahead and start heading up. <coughs> Church, it's your decision. It's completely your decision. God, in his grace and mercy, leaves that decision up to us because a decision that we make freely and on our own is so much more a part of us. It means so much more to it than when that decision is made without our choice. That's why we have free will. God wants your heart. He wants you to understand where the blessings came from, but he gives us the choice to make that decision. And here's the decision we need to make. Is Jesus who he said he was? Is he who he said he was? Is he the son of God? Or is he an imposter? A sorcerer doing magic tricks? What do you believe? If you're sitting here and you would like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time. It's very easy. But it can also be the hardest thing that you will ever do. Maybe you're sitting here and you would like to accept Jesus for the first time ever in your life, but maybe you said, I've done that, I think I've done that. But I'm feeling a little bit of a tug right now that I need to reaffirm that. I need to recommit myself to that decision or maybe I thought I had but I'm really feeling convicted now that I haven't it can be very easy to do here's the easy part easy part scripture says this in Romans 10 9 and 10 it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's that easy to accept Jesus Christ. Now here's the hard part. The hard part is also listed in Scripture. I didn't put it up on the notes. It's 1 Peter 5, 8. It says this, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That someone is someone who's a follower of Christ. Because here's the reality. If you're not a follower of Christ, the devil's already got you. He's already got you and he can have his way and you're defenseless against it. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, now the devil says, I want him back. And he's going to come at you. And he's going to throw things. He's going to start out easy like embarrassment. I don't want to raise my hand. I want to make that decision. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if my friends are going to, what's going to happen. Then he'll step it up a little bit. You make that decision, you're going to have to go home and throw away your CD collection. Don't touch my CD collection. You're going to have to leave your friends. Those friends that you go hang out with Saturday night, no more of that if you become a Christian. He's going to throw all kinds of lies like that at you. God doesn't want you to change who you are. He knows who you are. He made you who you are. All he wants is your heart. He wants your heart. It's not about a to-do list. It's not about a to-don't list. It's about giving in, surrendering yourself to Jesus. So I'd like to pray. Father God, there are, I know there are people in this room right now who need to know you, who know of you and who know of your son Jesus. They've heard it before. But God, they don't know you in their heart. They don't know the power of a risen Savior in their heart and the difference that it can make in a life. So, Father, I pray right now against any spirit of doubt or fear or confusion, anything that the enemy would be lying to us right now saying you shouldn't do this or it's not real or you've already done that, you don't need to do it again, don't worry about it. Whatever the enemy is throwing at us right now, I stand against that in the name of Jesus right now, this moment. God, and I just pray that you make yourself real to those who need to hear your voice right now. Father, those who are here and need to know you, God, make yourself real to them in a way like never before. I pray for open hearts and open minds and even those who have known you for their entire life, God, bring a fresh understanding of who you are. Bring a fresh heart and a fresh revelation that when we walk out of here, we will have not only an appreciation for who Jesus is, but why you did this for us. It's because you love us. Let there be no doubt that you are a loving father and you will stop at nothing to reconcile your children to you. Father, I pray for everyone here who has already made that decision and those who are making that decision today. Father, we thank you for the abundant life to come and your blessing on us always. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have made that decision here this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe it's just a reaffirmation. I want you to do this. Scripture says that you need to confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart confess with your mouth. So if you've made that decision here today, I would like you to be bold. Turn to the person next to you and confess that openly. Confess that you have given your heart to Jesus. And then we have another thing for you. I remember when I first gave my heart to Jesus, the pastor did a call very much like this. He said, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. We have people in the back who have some packets of of material that we'd like to get in your hand. I remember hearing all those things. But what I wanted to do was get out of there as fast as I could. I wanted to go home and process what just happened to me. I wanted to go to the bookstore. I think we drove straight to the Christian bookstore and I bought a new Bible. I was so excited, but I didn't want to talk to anybody. Part of me was like, I don't know what they're going to do. I know he said they weren't going to do anything weird. But how can I count on that? 
I'm not going to do anything weird to you. We're not going to ask you to do anything weird. Here's what we have, though. At the back of the sanctuary, we have our prayer team, for one, who would be honored and blessed to be able to pray with you and help you to understand what just happened to you. Maybe there's something else entirely you need prayer for. They are there for that. We also, though, at the back by the door, we have some books. This book is essentially a manual. It's a, it's a new believer's handbook. It will just help you with some of the basic things to understand and where do I go from here and what just happened. We would love to get one of those in your hand. So if you are walking out the door, we have those back there. Just reach for one. They'll hand it to you and away you go. They won't hand it to you and then say, come into this room that we have. None of that's going to happen. We want to make sure we help you get off on the right foot. And if we can do that, we would love to do that. The next way that we can celebrate this is that we can take communion together. We can celebrate our risen Savior by partaking in his broken body and his blood that was shed for us. We have at the crosses juice. You can serve yourself there with juice and bread. We have two stations up front. We'll have one here and one over here where we will serve you wine and bread. We would love to serve you. Let's do this with a fresh appreciation of what Jesus accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. Amen? Church, he is risen. Amen. The life you gave, your body was broken, your love poured out. You bled and you died for me there on the cross. You breathed your last as you were crucified. You gave it all for me. Yeah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Hallelujah, King forever.
Thank you for the cross. 